to V-Back Birth Stories, a podcast where Australians share their journey to a vaginal birth after caesarean. We are a safe haven for women to share their own V-Back journeys and through these personal experiences, educate and empower listeners. I'm your host, Mel. And I'm your host, Steph. And this is V-Back Birth Stories. Hi everyone, Mel here. Thanks so much for being patient with us as we navigate the new routine of editing and releasing episodes since my little baby arrived. Excited to be back at it and we hope to share episodes more regularly and as soon as we can. Today we hear from Wollongong mum of two Mara who had a VBAC with a short birth interval of only 15 months. Mara's first birth was a deeply traumatic emergency caesarean where she reached full dilation with the posterior baby. She was determined to have a VBAC when the time came, which to Mara's surprise happened a lot sooner than she had anticipated, and this posed some challenges for her, as her hospital were very discouraging of a VBAC due to her birth interval being less than 18 months apart. You'll hear how Mara bravely faces her trauma and uses her agency and different tools to make her second birth a far more positive experience. Mara, thank you for sharing your story with us and for being so honest and raising so many important points. In this episode, Mara talks about how she felt that presenting to hospital for reduced fetal movements actually contributed to the traumatic birth that she had. We would just like to remind our listeners that if you do experience reduced movements at all in your pregnancy, please don't hesitate to reach out to your care provider. And care providers listening, we hope you can please take on board Mara's experience to understand the effect hospital policies and procedures can have on birthing women's experiences and decisions for subsequent pregnancies. Thank you for listening and we hope you all enjoy this episode. Nice to meet you. Hi. Very nice to meet you. <laughs> so, Mara, what are the kids' names? And do you have a boy or girl? Or two boys. Oh, me too. Yes. Uh, hats off to you. <laughs> How old are they, Mara? Twenty months and five months. Wow. Okay. <laughs> you sit. You're in the <laughs> thick of it, though. That's like in the trenches, as yeah. we like to say. Now it's easier than it was two yes. months. So that first bit is just mental. But with the second, one hundred percent. But yeah. I can see how with each little tiny increment, it gets like a tiny bit easier. Tiny bit easier. It's right. It does. Oh, it actually good. does. Yeah. It's really good to hear. <laughs> it must have been really challenging at first. I can only yeah. imagine. My eldest one couldn't even walk, oh so that goodness. was he. He learned to walk about four weeks after that. So that was pretty mental. Four weeks of having to carry two babies. I guess it's not that different to having twins. And people yeah. seem to survive that. <laughs> so the 20-month-old is called Emil, E-M-I-L-E. Oh, Emil. That's and the lovely. little one's called Otavio, but he gets called Tavi for short. I work in the university sector and I teach in the creative arts department. Did you want to take us to before you had children and did you have any preconceived ideas about birth or how you would envisage your own births? In my kind of like most self-loathing moments as a teenager, I had always thought when I really hated my body, I'd always thought it's going to pay off later. It's going to work for you when you get pregnant. It's going to work for you when you 
have a baby. I always had hips and boobs and that kind of thing. And so when I was a teenager, I used to console myself with that. Like when it comes to that, I felt a kind of real inner confidence that I would do those things well, that my body would do those things well for me. And my mum had three really uncomplicated, easy, natural births. And so I am quite similar to her, like physically and in height and stuff like that. And I just thought that's what would happen to me too. I just had never even considered an alternative. (laughs) I just thought I would have an easy, uncomplicated pregnancy and I would have an easy, uncomplicated birth. And I was one of the first people that I know in my friend group, university group, I was one of the first people to fall pregnant and have a baby. So I didn't actually know a huge amount of people who had been pregnant or given birth before, apart from my mum and like the kind of older women in my family. Mm. And so I didn't have that kind of modern experience of people going before me it was all really 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 new to me and I just Mm. thought it would work I just thought it would be totally easy and totally natural and and it it just wasn't (laughs) it Mm. just wasn't at all what kind of care did you go with when you did fall pregnant I did not know anything about Mm. The maternity care options in the slightest I just went down to the GP and because I was naive and I didn't really know she didn't really explain the options to me she just kind of put me in shared care like she just said this is the best and not really knowing what the options were I didn't kind of push back against that I just went oh okay and I thought oh well that's easy I don't have to go up to the hospital but it wasn't a GP that I had a relationship with or anything like that it was just the local one like I'd never really I didn't have a GP. I didn't have, I'd never mm. had to go to the doctor before kind of thing. Then after a few weeks, I just started feeling really kind of like I wasn't getting all the information I needed from her. And so I went investigating, but by that point it was too late. I tried to get into the MGP once I found out what that was, mm. but by the time I tried, it was too late, but I wasn't happy with that GP and I just didn't feel like I was getting the information that I needed. So I just switched over to the general midwives clinic at the hospital and had a more positive experience with the midwife there. But once I found out what the MGP was, I was incredibly disappointed to not have been able to get in. But I didn't really worry about it because I thought I was having an uncomplicated pregnancy. I wasn't really worried about the birth and I thought, oh, well, it'll be okay. And so then with the second baby, because of how badly my first birth had gone, And having been rejected from the MGP already, the second time I couldn't even face trying and getting rejected. I didn't even try. I just thought that can't be what I rely on to get me through this and have a positive experience. I thought I've got to do this without continuity of care. I've got to be able to do it no matter what, even if I've never met a person in the room before. So I just went through the general midwives clinic again the second time, but I did have a doula. That was the big change after a very bad appointment with an obstetrician who just didn't take me seriously, wouldn't even write that I wanted to do a VBAC on the form. She wouldn't even write it down. She wrote to be decided, which was so frustrating because I was so certain that that's what I was doing and really all the scare tactics in the book and all that kind of thing. And so after that, I went home very upset to my partner and I said, we need help we're going to need like extra support in the room. And that's when we got the doula. Just to take you back, Mara. So you were saying that your pregnancy was uncomplicated. Do you want to take us to the end stages of Emil's pregnancy and what unfolded there? 
I got to 39 weeks and two days. And at 39 weeks and 39 and one, he moved a lot, like really a lot, a lot, a lot. And I thought, oh, okay, that's interesting. I didn't realize at the time, but I had an anterior placenta that pregnancy. And so I often felt nervous about the movement, felt like I couldn't feel them very well. The second baby had a posterior placenta and I was like, oh man, right now I get it. But so I was often worried about his movements, but I had never presented to hospital before because he'd always started again. But at 39 and two, that day, he just didn't move very much. And I waited the whole day. It had always kicked in again, but by five o'clock, I felt like I was so close to having the baby. I just got really nervous. And I said, he's not moving much. I think we need to go to the hospital. So I went and presented for reduced movements. And they just put me on the CTG monitor for a bit. And they said, "Mm, everything seems to be fine. And they gave me some juice. And that seemed to make him move more, which I thought was like totally counter to the advice that you're not meant to tell people to eat and drink. But Anyway, that seemed to work. And they said, maybe you didn't eat enough today. And I said, well, I don't think so. I think I ate the same as normal, but he definitely moved less. Anyway, they didn't seem to think there was much to worry about, but they did do an internal examination and said that I was already two centimetres dilated. That was unbeknownst to me. And that it could start that night. It could start in a couple of days. We wouldn't know. So we went out to dinner (laughs) because we thought this might be the last time. So... And then I went home, I went to bed, and then I woke up at 2am with contractions and thought, oh, okay, it's really happening. And a couple of things really took me by surprise that I was not expecting. And the first one was that from the very beginning, the contractions were very close together. And I had read that they would start further apart and then they would get closer together and you would get a break and you should try and rest and all that kind of thing. And that did not happen for me. They were 10 minutes apart at the beginning and did get a little bit closer, but it was intense from really when it started. And the second thing was the back pain. I just had excruciating back pain from the first contraction, which I was not prepared for. It persisted independent of the contractions so I was just in a lot of pain and really having to kind of manage it from very 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 early but I labored at home for as long as I could I rang the hospital they were like maybe three four minutes apart and felt like I was having trouble managing so we went off to hospital about 10 o'clock in the morning, I think. And when I got there, I was, I think, four or five centimetres dilated. So they were like, okay, stay. They put me in a birthing suite. I just kept going. The back pain was just excruciating the whole time. It was so tiring. And because I'd presented for reduced movements the day before, when I got there, they put the CTG monitor on me straight away. But they did not tell me why. I only know that in retrospect that because I'd presented for reduced movements, that's the policy. But I didn't know why. I thought they were just doing it to check and I thought they would take it off at some point and they never took it off. That really destabilized me from the moment I got there because I did not want that. I was not expecting that. I found it really uncomfortable and I kept getting in trouble for moving it. At one point, I demanded a wireless one 
but the wireless one didn't really solve that problem. They just kept coming in and moving it all the time, which I found really frustrating. My partner asked three or four times, is this really necessary? It's obviously really bothering her. Can we take it off? And every time they scared us with, it's for your benefit, that kind of, I just was totally in that zone of just doing what you're told and trying to manage the other people around you. And I just said, oh, just leave it on, just leave it on. Like, don't worry about it. It was quite intense, but I felt like I was managing okay. It was just the back pain that was just so bad. We didn't seem to be getting much useful information from the monitor, but at one point they looked on it and they said, we think there's meconium in the waters. We want to break them. I now know that I was in transition at that point, and that was like the worst possible time to be asking me that question. And I don't think I even thought about it. I just said yes, which is something that I deeply, deeply regret now. I I wish I had not let them do that, but they broke the waters. They were fine. There was no meconium in them. We kept going. The back pain just got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. What um, indication yeah. did they have that meconium was in I the don't water? Know. So they were saying potentially Bub was in distress. Yeah, or... but I know now from the notes that there's no mention of that in the notes. There's right. no okay. meconium in the notes. I, I, I have no idea why that happened. So eventually I had this like weird flashback of... At one point in the pregnancy, the midwife had said to me, you could get sterile water injections for back pain. And I had like not thought about that like for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And it was just at this one point, I just had this like total flash, like, oh my God, I can ask for that. So I asked for those and they really were very hesitant to give them to me. I'm not sure why, because I was really struggling with my mm. back. Luke and I was just had a heat pack on my back for like six hours without stopping. It was it was a major, major, major issue. And you didn't have any other pain relief, any gas or morphine um, or anything else that you've accessed at no, that time? I was using a lot of sound and vocalisation to get through the contractions, which was really working for me. I had read that in birth skills. And because of the work I do, I work in the theatre, I was really confident that I could use my voice and I was doing that really effectively. It was by far the best strategy that I had. But the first midwife I had really hated it. It really distressed her that I was using my voice like that. And she kept trying to get me on the gas and I kept saying no because I knew I didn't want it. And she just persisted so much that eventually I caved and I had the gas and I threw up almost immediately. <laughs> you poor thing. So then she didn't make me have it again. And I hated the gas. I felt really frustrated because she kept saying, you've got to breathe, you've got to breathe. And it's like making sound is breathing. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just breathing like the way that your body's meant to. And there's all this research that the vocal folds and the vagina mm. are connected. So that's what I was doing. I was mm-hmm. not making any sort of distress sounds. It was oh. like singing. It was oh. like primal singing. Oh. That's what I was doing. I was I was singing through the contractions, if you know what I mean. She just didn't like it. It made her uncomfortable. And that was another thing that just contributed to my feeling disempowered and not in control of the situation and what I was doing wasn't the right thing wasn't working. So I'd had two sucks of gas and thrown up before the sterile water injections. They really hurt. The last one when we gave them to ask us to stop halfway through. And Luke said he was quite concerned about that because he thought if they're prepping a woman in labour for this to be that painful, like it must be 
pretty bad Mm. (laughs) and they were he said I screamed like I was on fire it was just the most ridiculous thing he'd ever seen but they really worked wow okay really 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 worked so initially quite painful but then took effect soon after or 15 seconds of just feeling like you're going to die (laughs) 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 unimaginable pain like the I heard that it's like a sting sensation. Yeah. 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 It's the opposite of contraction pain. It's like sharp and, Mm. oh, stinging and, oh, they're really terrible, but they really, really worked for me. It was like a fog cleared from my mind after I had those. I could actually feel the contractions alone, not Mm -hmm. just the rolling intensity in my back and they bought me several hours and then by that point I was on the wireless monitors and I asked to get in the shower and I really liked the shower so the water injections had kicked in and the hot water was really working for me and that was the part of the birth that I just felt like I've got this I had a new midwife who was way better by that point and she kept saying you're doing a great job you're doing a great job and then they did an examination I think this was about five o'clock in the afternoon. So I had been going quite a long time. And they did an examination. They said 10 centimetres. And I said, oh, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) God. I can't believe it. You know, like it's really happening. And then she said, oh, wait, hang on a second. There's a bit of lip. We're not quite there. Keep going. So I kept going. And then they wanted to check again. I don't know how much time has passed, maybe another hour or something like that because I was so close they wanted to check again. Same thing, still the lip. And the water injections are wearing off by this time, so I'm going back into the rolling back pain. And I was committed to active labour, so I was moving the whole time. That was like how I was getting through it, sound and movement. So I'd been at that since 2 in the morning and I was getting really, really physically tired. And I was starting to panic. I was starting to go, like, this isn't working. Why is my baby not coming yet? And they suggested that they would put me on a drip to see if they could move the last little bit away. And I didn't really want to do that. I had not wanted to have any synthetic hormones, but I was starting to get really tired and really stressed. And I said, very reluctantly okay how long will we know if it's worked I don't want to be on it any longer than Mm. is necessary and they said about an hour we'll know if it's worked and I said okay so so they put me on the drip and then I was on the bed I was cleaning like that over the bed because that was about the only position with the back pain that I could handle and that was the worst part of the labor by far being on the drip it felt like we have this water park in Wollongong called Jamboree Action Park. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you control the action. <laughs> there's like an artificial wave pool there where the waves just come at you hard and fast and regular. And that's what being on the drip felt like to me. It felt like being in the wave pool. They just kept hitting me over and over and over again. And they were so much more painful and so much harder to handle than the contractions that I'd been having for hours and hours and hours before then. So after an hour on the drip, they checked again, exactly the same, no change, still 
basically dilated but with this little bit of lip. And had they obviously tried sort of manual manoeuvres? Oh, okay. So this this is the part that I cannot understand. From that point, after going off the drip, I was not offered any sort of manual manoeuvre. I was not offered any change of position. I was not offered anything except caesarean or morphine. And that is it. And I cannot understand why that happened. After I got off the drip, I kept trying a bit more, but I was starting to get so tired and I was losing control of my legs. So Luke said he noticed that my leg had been shaking for like quite a few hours, but basically I was getting to the point where I couldn't stand and I was getting shooting pains all the way up my leg that was going numb. And I really thought I'm... I'm not going to be able to stand or walk anymore. And if I can't move, I don't know how I'm going to keep doing this. I need to find out about what my options for pain relief are. We said to the doc, what are the options from here? And she said, I won't give you the epidural because it's not going to do anything, which is what I was gearing up to have. Even though I hadn't wanted that, I thought, what else am I going to do? She said, I've been watching you all day and you haven't moved him. Um, She said, you haven't moved the baby and I can't move the baby. Your options are morphine or caesarean and I'm recommending you have the caesarean. And something just like snapped in me at that point. As soon as she gave up on me, I just thought, I can't do it. You know, I, I really just can't do it. I don't know why. I've tried so hard all day. I've, I, I just knew I was out of resources. And if anyone, I mean, Luke, poor thing, he's going, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. I told him that I would lose confidence and that he should tell me to keep going. And if anyone else in that room had said, no, you can do it, keep going, I would have kept going. But all the medical people just gave up on me. They said, this is the end of the line. No one offered me any other... Thing. and I was so so tired that I just said yes and I know now from reading how to heal a bad birth that I, I wasn't really consenting to that I, I was asking for help I, I, I needed help and I didn't get it I needed support at that point and I, and I just I didn't get it I never had any fear for the baby and they didn't either. There was no suggestion that the baby was in distress. It was just you. You are the problem. You have not managed to do this. We have exhausted every option. So we went off to the theatre and because I hadn't had the epidural, I had to have a spinal. Because it was emergency, I had to wait quite a long time because it was now quite late at night and they needed to get another team in. So I was stuck on my back on the bed for quite a while alone still having full-blown contractions because I was still in full-blown labour. It took ages to get the spinal in because they kept saying to me, are you having a contraction now? And I would say, I don't know. I don't know. The back pain is so bad that I can't tell the difference. Eventually they managed to get it in and I'm really, really, really frightened because I have done research about every single thing to do with birth except for cesareans because I was so so confident that I would not have to have one it never even entered my mind so I had no idea what was happening at all and I was really frightened by the sensation I I kept saying to them I can feel I can feel like don't do it yet don't you do it yet I I can feel and they they had to do like the hot 
cold thing. Heaps mm. of times, like maybe five or six times before I relaxed enough to to proceed. I was I was just so exhausted and so frightened that I couldn't even kind of focus on what was happening. I couldn't even really think about the baby. I was so overwhelmed. And then he did get to be on my chest for a tiny bit, but then I got taken off to recovery alone. Yeah, feeling really kind of just, I had no idea what had just happened to me. And I didn't get back to the room and the baby until about after, until after midnight. And then Luke had to go straight away because he wasn't allowed to stay because it was after midnight. And I was in a lot of pain. I don't know why, but the pain relief wasn't working. And so I was just on my own in the middle of the night in a hospital room with a baby that I couldn't move to pick up and just thinking, what has happened to me? This is as far from what I had imagined this day would be like as I possibly can. I just felt like I'd been hit by a bus and it was a really horrible night and the the guilt and the um like my baby crying and not being able to get up to to hold him I just felt distant and disconnected and scared and it was just 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 terrible and really 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 devastating yeah I I've I've got very little positive to kind of draw from from that experience it was the worst day of my life by far and I had thought it was going to be the best yeah but it was really 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 hard to to process to cope with so sorry for your experience did they mention anything to you like after that did you have a debrief with the doctors then did they talk about baby's position? Was he yeah. posterior? Yeah. And what did they say about the cervical lip in the end? The cervical lip was never mentioned again. The doctor just came in the next day and said, you had a posterior baby. He got stuck. And he, Emil had a really, really cone-shaped head when he was born. He was quite far down. They got him out with quite ease with the cesarean, but that was very lucky. They said he was very far down and it's often hard to get babies out when they're that far down the birth canal. And his head was just, they called him Sugar Mountain because he was trying his butt off to get out. When you saw him, you were like, that baby was really he was giving it a go. <laughs> there was evidence of your hard work there. No one said the word posterior to me at any point in the labour though, mm. not at any point. I didn't even know what it was. And that is baffling to me now because of the extraordinary back pain that I had and the range of things that clearly were indicating that that was the position mm. of the baby. Now, they never said this to me, but what I think happened was that they broke my waters too early and he couldn't turn. I think that's what was going on. And I had a debrief with a midwife much later on in preparation for the second birth where she said there's nothing in the notes about having a posterior baby. No one bothered to check. So she thinks that I was misinterpreted as having a slow anterior labor when I was actually having a pretty fast effective posterior birth and he just needed to turn she showed me with like a model of the pelvis and the baby he Mm. just needed to turn and then that lip would have moved out of the way and we probably would have kept going and she said I needed to be in different positions and that I needed that 
midwifery support. When I went to meet her before my second birth, she said, you have not had a failure to progress. You have had a failure of midwifery care. And I just bawled my eyes out because from sort of sadness and also relief that it wasn't me. Because it would have felt so validating after you spoke about feeling that loss of moral support at the crucial point in that labour when you needed it the most. I don't understand why he didn't descend. And she was like, come and have a look at this. And she showed me the chart and it's like this. The dilation and the descent of the baby are perfect, textbook. Mm. Everything was going fine. It was just taking longer because he was not in the right position. And, and she was amazing, this woman, because just from reading the notes, she knew so much about what had happened in that birth. She had really intuited a lot of things that I can't imagine about me that I can't imagine on there. And she said to me, I bet you would have done anything that you were told to. And I said, yes, if anyone had said, do this, I would have done it. I would not have given up if I had been given any other option, but uh, I just felt like they were saying, this is the end of the line. But the doctor just said the next day, don't, don't worry about it. Wait two years and you'll be fine. You'll be able to have a, a vaginal birth. The view was not that there was anything wrong with my pelvis. It was just that the baby was in a bad position. And they didn't mention the lip. Can you tell us what the interval was between your first birth and then falling pregnant with your second? Yeah, my first child was almost eight months old, just about eight months old. So the interval was meant to be 16 and a half months, but number two decided to come five weeks early. So they're 15 months apart, (laughs) but that was meant to be a little bit more than that. Mm. And I can imagine the resistance from the obstetrician is because of the short interval, right? This was the fortunate thing because I work in a university, I know how to read research Mm -hmm. papers. Mm -hmm. So I went and read everything that was footnoted in the New South Wales VBAC guidelines to see if there was actually a significant difference because I thought it was going to be 16 and a half months Mm. and they were saying to me 18 would be fine but yours is unacceptable and I thought for six weeks that's ridiculous and I could not find any convincing research that there was a marked difference after 18 months or before 18 months and the other thing was that I was on the VBAC Australia Facebook group And what I could see from that was no matter how long ago your cesarean was, people are still trying to talk you out of it. So there were women on there who had had a cesarean 10 years ago and were still being told it was dangerous. So I thought, actually, everybody's being told this. There's no one that's being told this is 100% safe interval for you to do this. So I just thought, stuff them. And (laughs) yeah, I was not, I read heaps of studies about birth interval and I just, I was not convinced by the data that there was anything significantly higher risk of rupture than if I had fallen pregnant six weeks later. I I just couldn't see that that was going to be true. Yeah. With that sort of interval, what was your mindset like? You know, were you still sort of coming out of postpartum with your first and were you still traumatised by that first birth? How did you manage? In retrospect, it was a blessing in disguise because it forced me to have to deal with the trauma because I now have to do it again and in retrospect I think that was a good thing I think if I had waited longer I would have fallen much deeper into 
a postnatal depression because I would have this gave me something to focus on I might be able to have a different experience this time whereas at the point that I fell pregnant I was still very 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 traumatized from the first birth and dreaming about it all the time it it didn't sort of hit me straight away like the first few months were just so like I would feel very very sad whenever I had to talk to anybody about what had happened in the birth But it wasn't till about four or five months after he was born that it really started to hit me and I started dreaming about it kind of every night. I used to dream that I ripped the CTG monitors off just on repeat and I started to get really, anytime I would hear somebody talking about birth or or if someone asked me something, I I I would feel that it would start to like kind of well up inside me. And I I started getting really withdrawn and really I was finding it really difficult to to focus on on things. It was just like constantly in my mind. Yeah, and, and that was really, 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 really hard. I felt like such a failure. Neither of us had wanted to have a cesarean. So he hadn't wanted it either, but he had accepted that that's what had happened. And he thought that I kind of had too and had made peace with it and he was quite surprised that I was still being affected by it as strongly as I was, as was I. I didn't know anything about birth trauma. I had no idea it was a thing. I had no idea how many people suffer from it. But I was just so deep into it and it was really starting to affect me on kind of every level. It got bad enough that I said I need to go and talk to someone about this. Mm. But I didn't want to go to a psychologist because I felt like I, I wasn't, I didn't have a psychological problem. I just was upset about my birth so I ended up going and speaking to this woman who I'd gone to prenatal yoga with who works as a doula and like a postpartum doula as well and I knew her and I felt safe with her and I just went and said I'm not I'm not coping with this and I'd gone to mum and baby yoga with her and we'd had to go around and say what we'd found the hardest about the transition to motherhood and everybody said stuff like you know resenting their partner or you know, finding it lonely being at home with the baby, all that kind of thing. And I was the only one that said the birth, like everything since then has been fantastic, but I can't stop thinking about how my birth didn't go how I wanted. So I went and talked to her and and cried a lot, (laughs) but that was quite helpful because she was, this is really, really common. You are not the only person who feels like this. And that was quite good because I didn't know anybody who felt like this everybody who I seemed to know had had a great birth that went fine and I didn't know anybody who'd had a cesarean as well my mum had had natural births my mother-in-law had had natural birth all my partner's sisters had had natural births his ex-wife had had natural births I just felt like I was the only person in the world who had not been able to do it and that was really yeah really affecting me and then we got pregnant with number two and I was like oh my god how am I going to do this but being able to channel the energy into the kind of quest for the VBAC was really actually helpful I had to face my fear and my doubts head on because I had to be able to do it again never once did I go I'll just have an elective cesarean I never ever ever considered it I thought this is my chance to this is my chance to to fix it to to right the the first wrong 
And in a really strange way, because they're so close together, I don't feel like I had two births. I feel like I had one birth that ended with the second child. I feel like the first birth left an open wound that was not resolved until my second baby was born. And now I feel that is closed. I, I feel mm. I feel much, much, much better about it. I have forgiven myself for many of the things that happened, but it doesn't feel like two stories. It feels like one story mm. that finally got closed off. It's interesting you say that you consider it as one story because I noticed from the beginning that you have been speaking mm. about the births as one. I just noticed that in yes. the way you, you'll close it off with your second. how it feels to me because, yeah. because I, it, I didn't have enough I didn't have enough time to get over it. I didn't have enough time. I just, it, they've merged into one. So take us to when you fell pregnant with your second. What did you decide to do from there on your journey towards a VBAC and what other tools did you use yeah. to allow you yeah. to move forward? So even before I fell pregnant, I had been when I was in a dark room at night feeding my first baby, I was Googling VBAC almost every night because it was such a problem in my mind that I had not been able to do it. And we didn't have any plans of getting pregnant again, but I just thought when it happens, I have to be able to do that. So I was sort of, it was like compulsive, wasn't sort of, I didn't sit down to think this is what I'm going to do. I just couldn't help it. It was the only thing I could think about. So I was doing a lot of reading and a lot of research. I joined that Facebook group, the VBAC Australia Support Group, which is an extraordinary repository of, of women's experiences and really helped me to see that what had happened to me was sadly not unusual. So I was reading that Facebook group every day, trying to soak up as much information as I could. I decided after the obstetrician appointment that I, need, that I, I thought the doula would be helpful well, I, I guess the way to explain it is one of the things that was so traumatic about the first birth is that I realised that the hospital staff were not there for me. They were there for the hospital. And I had not realised that before I had the baby. They are there to execute the hospital's procedures and policies. They're not actually there to help you get what you want. And I thought a doula is different because they are there just to help you get what you want and to help you figure out what that is. So that seemed like a really good thing. And she gave me a bunch of books to read, including How to Heal a Bad Birth, which I read cover to cover and bawled my eyes out most of the way. It was incredibly difficult to read and it was incredibly useful as well. And I highlighted a bunch of sections and got my partner to read them too because I felt like it was the clearest articulation of why I couldn't just get over it and what exactly had been the problem with what had happened to me the first time. So I, I found that book extremely, extremely, extremely helpful. I was incredibly paranoid about having another posterior baby, incredibly paranoid. So I was sleeping on my side, religiously on the left side. Mm -hmm. I was not leaning back at anything. I was being really careful about how I positioned my body. I went to a chiropractor. I was doing yoga. I was trying to keep really active throughout the pregnancy 
I booked in to go to acupuncture, but I never got to go because I didn't make it for six weeks. Um, And the hilarious thing about that is I booked in really late with the first baby with Emil. I was meant to have acupuncture the day he was born. So I've never met this acupuncturist. (laughs) 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 Times I've missed the appointments. She must think this woman is nutty, but that's what's happened. Um, and I only went to the chiropractor once. I missed out on the second appointment of that too because Otavio came early. We did a lot of work of talking through what was the kind of hierarchy of options. Because of how badly the first birth had gone and how many things I had done that I had never imagined that I would do, this time I was really prepared for what would I would compromise on if it came to it and what I wouldn't. And for me, it was, I will do anything that is not going to that theatre. So if I have to have an epidural, I will have it. If I have to have X, Y, and Z, I will have it. The goal here is not to have a cesarean. And for me, that was the outcome. I totally understand that some women choose to have a cesarean over a instrumental delivery and stuff like that. But for me, it was really like everything we are doing is to avoid going to the theatre. So all the birth plan stuff was really about that. I felt like I couldn't be naive about that things could go unexpected and I wanted to have talked about kind of every option that we could think of so that we were prepared. And the other thing, and this is what the midwife did with me, she said, you are going to practice with me saying I do not consent. And I practiced that a lot because I felt like I had agreed to heaps of things in the first birth that I didn't really want to. And so I I was practicing out loud to myself all the time. I do not consent. And that served me really, really, really well. That was a really important part of the preparation to actually practice saying out loud that I am not going to do what you are asking me to do because all my instincts with medical professionals are to be a good girl and to do what I'm told. Yeah, not to be like obstinate about it, to be willing to listen, but to listen and then be willing to go, no, I'm still not doing that, which I had not done in my first birth. I should have said, I don't want that CTG monitor on. I should have said, I don't want to be on that drip. I should have said, I don't want my waters broken. But it's also, I think about, yeah, not simply saying, yeah, consenting or non-consent, but it's also about in terms of informed decision-making to have the options presented to you in a way of these are the benefits versus Mm -hmm. the risk of, say, intermittent monitoring compared to constant fetal monitoring. And it sounds like in your first birth, there was a lack of communication and presentation to you of these options, of the medical risks and benefits um, to allow you to make an actual informed Most of the time, not at all. I had to be the one to stand up and and say no. And Luke was really prepared to do that too. Yeah. Yeah. We both trained to say no. And because of the VBAC policy at our hospital is cannula on arrival, like continuous fetal monitoring. So we knew that as soon as we got there, we would have to decline. That that's going to be our first encounter with the medical staff saying no. Mara, were you worried about the doula not being there for your birth because of COVID? Yeah. So when we hired her, you couldn't have a doula at the birth. Okay. And I talked to her about that because obviously I thought, is that going to be a waste of money if I can't even have her? 
And she told me that she had just had a woman give birth with those restrictions and they had stayed at home like right till the last minute and then the woman had just gone off to hospital and had her baby 15 minutes later. Yeah. I live five minutes drive from the hospital. So I felt pretty confident that that would actually be okay. And my plan was to stay home as long as possible. That didn't go to plan with this birth, but that was our plan. Mm. That a doula would come to my house. I felt confident I could stick it out for a really long time at home first. And that was really the plan to basically turn up pushing <laughs> so yes. it couldn't take me to the theatre. Like that, that, was, that mm. was our plan. The restrictions were relaxed so our doula could come. Mm. Um, ah, cool. And that was really lucky and I was really glad about that, particularly given how the second birth went. I felt like the cascade of interventions with the first birth, and this was one of the reasons why I was so traumatised by it and beat myself up so much, is because I had gone in for reduced movements. And if I hadn't gone in for reduced movements, I would not have had continuous fetal monitoring. I don't think a range of things would have happened to me if I hadn't presented for that. And so I just beat myself up about that for a really long time because I felt like I had caused it. I had gone for reassurance, but what I had found out was that my need to be reassured had actually marked me as a problem, as a risk, as a liability. And so this pregnancy, the second pregnancy, I was really careful to not get any information that I didn't think was going to serve me. So I was under a lot of pressure, even from the really good midwife, to get growth scans. They wanted them at 28 weeks and at 34 weeks. And I refused both of those because I thought the only thing that this can show is big baby and make it harder for me to try and have a VBAC. So I refused both of those. Not because I didn't want to see the baby and check that it was okay. I really did. But I had an intense fear that that information would be used against me. So it wasn't so much going back to the hospital that was the source of the fear. It was the idea that my vulnerabilities, my weaknesses, my need or desire to check that my baby was okay was going to fuel the medical professional's desire to not let me have a VBAC. And that was hard. That that was scary. I had to really, really, really trust that it was going to be okay. And if I'd had reduced movements again, I don't know if I would have gone in because I was really traumatized by that first experience of not just of not being reassured, of being put in a kind of category of liability. Did you say you had a meeting with a private midwife in between your pregnancies? Is it a private? When I was pregnant with a second baby and I'd had this really bad appointment with an obstetrician who I'd not wanted to see, I'd not requested to see an obstetrician or anything like that, I just got given one because Mm -hmm. I was seen to be more high risk because of the birth interval. And after that, I, I really was not. I was very, very unhappy with that. And then we hired the doula and I I said to the doula, like, I've had a really bad experience with an obstetrician. And she said, you need to see this midwife. And this is not common knowledge, but at hospital, they actually have a really VBAC supportive midwife and a VBAC clinic, but it's not advertised. You don't know about it. And she said, here's her email. The doula said, here's her email, email her. And I emailed her and said, told her what the situation was and she said come and see me I have a VBAC clinic on Wednesday mornings I, I I had to go a really roundabout way to get that that was not offered to me even though I spent like an hour in a room with an obstetrician saying VBAC on repeat that was never ever ever suggested to me that that was a possibility so yeah I went to see she's the 
head clinical midwife, I think, at the hospital. And I had a, an appointment with her. She'd read all my notes. The obstetrician had not read any of my notes or looked at anything about my previous birth, but made all the decisions based on kind of nothing. Yeah, and she'd read everything. She had all the notes there. She talked to me about it. The obstetrician had said I had a less than 50% chance of success and that the fact I'd gotten so far in my previous birth counted against me. That was less likely to make me successful. Because I was so stubborn with her and she said at one point, like, why would you want to do this? And I said, well, I've had an unmedicated long labour before. I know what I'm getting into. I, I, this, I'm not someone who's never laboured before. I, I, I've done a hard, long labour and I'm telling you I want to oh. do it again. That should count for something. And she goes, no, no, it, it doesn't. It, it definitely decreases your chance of success. Did but, she use the VBAC calculator? No, she didn't do that. She just said you have a less than 50% chance. Where is she getting um, that from? There, I had an obstetrician tell me the same thing, Mel, early on in, yeah. in my VBAC pregnancy. And he was using some kind of research to back up the claim that apparently if you've had a failure to progress or a long labour and things haven't ended with a vaginal delivery, you have a worse chance than someone who's gone for an elective cesarean to apparently achieve a VBAC. And I'm not sure where the mm. research came from, but he quoted something to me and was throwing stats at me. And I I was just sort of, that doesn't make logical sense to me though, for the exact no. reasons that you were talking yeah. about. That's it. Exactly. That's and the clinical midwife, after actually reading my birth notes, said, I think you have a 95% chance of, of success. So it was just mm. like a, a polar opposite experience. Yeah. Mm. So... Octavia, you came early. What was that like for you? Obviously, you've told us your plan. So, yes. so I was 34 weeks and four days and it was a Monday and I just woke up feeling really, 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 really terrible. A lot of pressure in my pelvis and finding it hard to walk, feeling really uncomfortable and I had to go to work and I just felt really, really crap all day and kind of sick and fluey and stuff like that. Luke said, this doesn't really doesn't sound right. Like, are, are you okay? Maybe you should go and get checked. This was Monday night and I said, no, I'm not going to get checked. I'm too worried that they will want to monitor me really closely and that this will be harder for me to have the V back. So no, no, I won't. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I'll see how I feel tomorrow. If I'm still feeling this bad tomorrow, then I will go and get checked, but I don't want to go now because of the first experience. But then I woke up at like two in the morning again and had to go to the toilet as you do when you're that pregnant. And I had a contraction on the toilet and I thought, that's odd. That feels like a contraction. But I thought maybe it was just like something weird going on. I went back to bed. And then I don't know how much time passed, but I, I had to roll over because I was uncomfortable and I had another contraction. I thought, hmm, that's weird. And so I just kept trying to go back to sleep. But at some point I couldn't tell how much time had passed. I felt like I was having more of them and like they were closer together. But because I'd been dozing in and out of sleep, I couldn't really tell if they were actually getting closer together or they weren't. I assumed that what I was having was prodromal labor because I'd read so many stories on that Facebook group about women who have labor that starts and stops for many weeks. And I thought 34 weeks, that's way too early. That's what's going to be happening. 
this is a disaster. How am I going to go to work feeling like this and having contractions all the time? This is mental. And for whatever reason, Luke couldn't sleep very well that night either. So at four o'clock in the morning or something, he got up and he was in the lounge room. And then I think maybe about an hour later, maybe five o'clock, I got up too because I couldn't sort of stay in bed anymore. And I said to him, I, I think I'm having contractions. I think they're getting closer together. Can you please time them so we can see what's happening? And I wasn't in any pain at that point. I just lay on the couch and I said, it's starting, it's stopping, it's starting, it's stopping. Anyway, I had about 10 in an hour and we thought, hmm, that seems a bit odd. <laughs> and... So at six o'clock in the morning, I rang the hospital and said, I'm 34 weeks and five days, but I seem to be having some contractions. It seems a bit weird to me. And they went, oh, okay, just maybe you should come in. I said, oh, okay. Um, I was still not really like struggling very much, not really struggling at all at that point. So I, I rang my mom and and said, I think I need you to come and watch a meal. You know how I felt really bad yesterday? Well, I think something's going on. She's like, what? And race is over. They live about 20 minutes away, my parents. So, And by that point, things were starting to, to ramp up. But we had no bag packed. We had absolutely nothing ready because second child, we thought we had five weeks to go. Like we had not done a single thing. So it was starting to get worse. I'm trying to throw stuff in a bag. I still don't think I really thought it was really happening by that point. But I thought, I no, I definitely need to go and get checked. I can't just go about my my day. I messaged my doula because it was still really early in the morning. And I said, look, I think I'm having some contractions, but don't go. To the, we're going to the hospital to get checked. Don't come. I'll ring you. I'm sure they'll send me home. And I said to my parents, we're going. We'll be back. Don't worry about it. I assumed that even if it was labor, it would be like so early because I thought I would be like two, three centimeters, something like that, because the contractions were so manageable, even though they were getting like worse, they were so manageable because I didn't have the back pain and they had started further apart and gotten closer together. So I was like, this is nothing. I can, this is. <laughs> so we drove to the hospital. It's getting worse. And the, at our hospital, the walk from the car park to the birthing unit is like, 10 kilometers long is what it feels like. Oh. <laughs> what? Why do I they really do this? Like, like everyone that passes us is like, do you need a wheelchair? I'm like, no, I don't need a wheelchair. Like <laughs> worse than sitting down. Like I was really having to, to work pretty hard. And we got to the birthing unit and I think they just thought I couldn't handle it really well or something because they sort of faffed around a bit and took, I think they thought 34 weeks, she just can't handle labor or whatever. I'm in the room and the, the midwife comes to see me and she says, I'm going to have to put this monitor on. And I said, no, I do not consent like I'd practiced. And she <laughs> you have to have this monitor on. And I said, I don't want that monitor on. And she was like, you are 34 weeks, you are having this monitor on. And I said, okay, to check at the beginning, but as soon as I want it off, I'm taking it off whether you say I can or not. And she was like, okay. About 10 minutes later, really angry and said, you didn't tell me you've had a cesarean. And I was like, what? I'm not thinking about that at the moment. She had just agreed for a woman who was 34 weeks pregnant and had had a prior cesarean to take the monitor off. So she was panicking 
I think, that she was going to get in trouble. I don't think that was really about me, if that Mm. makes sense. I think it was just like, oh, my God. Well, then later in the labour, she kind of, she was trying to get me to do something. I can't even remember what, and and we didn't want to do it. And we pushed back and we said, no, give us the evidence. What's the evidence that this needs to happen? And she got really distressed and said, it's policy. And then it was like, that snapped her out of it or something. It was like mm. saying that made her go, oh, that's why I'm so stressed about this because it's policy. Very, very, very end, like after the baby was born, I said to her and the doctor, like, thank you. I know that we were difficult. I know that we were not like. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't good patients. <laughs> yeah. said to me, we just have so many forms to fill out and so many policies. It was like after that moment she totally changed and was like, oh, okay, these people are not uninformed, like they are making this choice and I am worried because of the policies. And as hard as it is still for me to think about Emile's birth like that, like all those things that happened to me were not anything to do with me. They were just to do with the hospital. It did make it so much easier going into that the second time because I had accepted that, that they were not there to help me. They were there to follow the policies and procedures of the hospital. Anyway, then she did an internal examination and I was going, I need to get in the shower. I really, really need the water. I need to get in the shower. And she was like, yeah, yeah. Anyway, she did an internal examination and was like, oh, my God, nine centimetres. And then it was go, go, go. Like suddenly there were like people everywhere. I was in a room. I was like ripping my clothes off in the shower. I think they just did not think I was that far along. I did not think I was that far along. So it was really, oh my God, the baby's coming today. So from when I rang the hospital to it was like, we are having a baby. It was maybe an hour and a quarter, an hour and a half. It was really, really, really fun. When I got into the kind of examination room, I'd said to Luke, I think we need to ring Amelia. That's our doula. I said, Mm. I I think I'm going to need her. He was like, okay. So we rang her and she came. She was able to come quite quickly. So my plan of labouring at home did not work out at all. And so I was labouring there. I felt like I was going really well because I didn't have any back pain at all. Um, And it was just like, this is it. I'm doing it. But there was a lot of people in the room and a lot of pressure and a lot of discussion. And there were people like in plain clothes who I don't even really know who they were. But there was this one woman who was really adamant that she wanted me to have the cannula. And I really, really, really didn't want the cannula. And so I would be having like a full-on contraction. I was on the ball in the shower. As soon as the contraction finished, she would start talking to me like, Mara, we really want you to have the cannula. And then I would start having another one again and she would stop. And then as soon as it was over, she would like finish the sentence that she'd started. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) And they just kept us over and over and over. You're only 34 weeks Like, we need to do this. And at one point, Luke got really frustrated with them and was like, we know that. We know that that's how far along she is. If you have more information, then come and talk to us about it. But we have already declined that and we know this is what the situation is. Like, we're saying no. Like, unless you have extra evidence for why we should do X, Y, or Z, we don't want to hear it. If it's just because she's 34 weeks, Mm. that's not good enough for us. We Mm. need an actual clinical reason 
why you want to do that. That's great that you had him to advocate so strongly for you when you were in the vulnerable position. He'd obviously been briefed on (laughs) on what to say and and what not to say, which is really good. I I think that can really really help. They had pushed him on any of those points. He would not have known what to say. It was like my voice in his head telling him what to say Um, this is the such the interesting thing that represents how that it's how you feel about the birth not what's done to you in that I never took the monitors off even though I said to that midwife I'm taking them off when I want them I never took them off because what happened this time was if they were not in the right position my doula moved them so she stayed with me and she adjusted them and she told me what she was doing and she said these monitors are really helping you. They are leaving you much more alone because they can see that the baby's okay. And so I had two births that I was continuously monitored, one that was deeply traumatizing and one that was not, even though the same thing was happening because Mm. she was assisting me and involving me in the process. I didn't feel like I was being monitored. I felt like the monitoring was helping me to get what I wanted I didn't even notice that was on I really didn't think about it at all the first time it was so uncomfortable and felt so restrictive and all that kind of thing but they just kept pushing about the cannula because I hadn't had the GBS test because I was not far enough along and they were very worried about that but I just kept saying no and eventually the the woman in the plain clothes said to me why why don't you want to have this and I said because I am traumatized by my first birth and I don't want it to happen again. And then she left me alone. There was sort of quite a lot of rolling concern a lot of the time. And I, it's hard to remember at exactly what points it happened, but from nine centimeters, it took a little bit longer than they had thought it would. And so I was then starting to come under a lot of pressure to have a cesarean because they're like, you're very far along, you're early in your labor. And I was offered a cesarean twice by a doctor who never stepped in the room, which Um, I find really, I know that's how hospitals work, but I just find that so difficult to understand. Like at least come in the room and see me and see how I'm going and make your judgment from me, not from the, the arbitrary kind of data that's like a woman has presented at this gestation and is doing this. It's like I'm a human being. I want you to to look at me as like a whole person and do that. But I got quite lucky in that I had an obstetrician on duty who played by the rules but didn't push any more than that. Like she did everything by the book that she had to, but she, I think, secretly wanted me to succeed and that really, really, really helped. Mm. So my waters still hadn't broken and I'd been at the hospital a few hours going really well, but the contractions had started getting further apart and I started to get some back pain and I really started freaking because I thought this is happening again I knew that the baby was turning posterior because I knew that that's what the back pain meant so I was starting to get quite anxious and the doctor did the check fully dilated but with a cervical lip again and I am just freaking because I thought oh my god oh my god this is my body is faulty I can't do this it's not going to work and Luke and my doula are going you can you can you can you just have to keep going the obstetrician wanted to break my waters 
I was very, very, very nervous about that because of having them broken prematurely with a meal. So I said, no, I didn't want that. And we kept going. And I had been given advice by the midwife that I saw that one of the things I should have done in the birth with a meal was put one leg up on the bed and one on the floor and done a few contractions like that and then switched sides. So I said, no, I want to do that. And that was really hard. I forgot about this. I got put on, I think I, they, they were watching the clock more closely because of something that got mismanaged earlier, which I don't think was fair. I don't think this had happened. Anyway, I really needed to go to the toilet. <laughs> and I said that. I said, I, I need to go to the toilet. I'd tried to go at home and not been able to. And I said, I, I really need to go to the toilet. And they thought because I was so dilated that I, that was me saying I was ready to push. And I knew it wasn't. I didn't feel like I wanted to push. I just needed to go to the toilet. And so they're going, you can go to the toilet, but you can't have the baby on the toilet. I'm going, I know. I just <laughs> go to the toilet. So as soon as I went to the toilet, they got me on all fours like the baby's coming. And I was like, the baby isn't coming. The baby isn't coming. They were like trying to get me to push. And I'm going, okay. And I sort of tried pushing, but it, it wasn't working. I, I didn't feel the urge. They thought the baby was coming then. It took a few hours after that. It was like then I was slow and on the clock, but that was just a false Management, like mm. I just needed to go to the toilet. That's really. And you were able to go to the toilet without an issue. Like you were able to urinate, no problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was good. Okay. I, I just really needed to go to the toilet. Yeah. <laughs> but they thought that I was, I was saying I was ready to push, and because I hadn't pushed before, I think they thought that I didn't understand that that was the sensation. But I just knew that wasn't it. When I was refusing to have the waters broken and wanting to try the different positions, they were starting to get quite concerned and saying. We would have expected that you would have had the baby by now, given given how dilated you were. And I said, no, 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 I'm not ready to do that yet. I want to try more things. And we tried a few different positions and then they checked again and it was still the same. They offered the cesarean again. And I said, no, I want to do more rounds of the positions. So we did more of one leg on the bed, more of the other leg on the bed. And then I let them check again. And the doctor said, I really think if I break the waters, I can push it out of the way and this is going to work. And so we waited a bit more. We talked about it and I said to my doula, what do you think? Is this going to work? We, we, we didn't know. It was a leap of faith, but the doctor seemed to really think it was going to. And so I let her break the waters and it was such a different experience than with a meal. With a meal, it was like, a flood I remember feeling this huge sense of relief and just water everywhere this time with Otavio the breaking of the waters I didn't even feel a thing I think there was like a trickle because he was so far down that they were all behind him I think so it was like no relief didn't really feel like anything much had happened at all and as soon as she broke the waters all these people ran in the room and were like bush push push (laughs) the other thing is by this point I'm on the bed in stirrups because they're preparing for a instrumental delivery because the baby's heart rate was dropping and they were concerned and I didn't really want that but I thought I'd have been offered the cesarean twice and I thought if I get out of this with an instrumental delivery I'll, I'll be happy with that that that's a better outcome and so it was good that I'd really thought that through in advance of I didn't have to in the moment go which one do I want to do I knew exactly what I wanted 
So I'm in the stairs. It wasn't very comfortable. And I said, I don't, is this the best position for me to be pushing in? And they were, this is just where you have to be for now. And I was kind of like, not super happy about that. But again, I thought if this is what's happening, I can, I can live with this. And I found pushing really, really, really hard. I don't know if it was because of the position or if I just needed more time or whatever, but I never got that really strong fetal ejection urge that people talk about. I just never felt it. I pushed because they yelled at me to push. And I really would, I said afterwards, if no one had been yelling at me to push, I don't think I would have. I don't think I would have done it. It just really didn't feel like that. But they kept saying, oh, it's going great. It's going great. You're doing a good job. I really couldn't even feel the baby moving down. I just didn't feel like anything was happening. I couldn't tell the difference between an effective push and an ineffective push. Because Luke said afterwards, it was really weird. Like sometimes I could see that the baby really moved and sometimes it didn't, like he didn't move at all. And I was, I had no sense of which one was which. Mm. I just pushed because I was told to. They just kept telling me to push, push, push. And at one point I'm going, oh, this is really hard. This is really hard. I, I, you know, and they said, put your hand down and feel. And I put my hand down and I could feel the baby's head. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> oh my God, this is really, really, really hard. And a few more pushes, they're preparing for the instrumental delivery, but this is what I mean about I think the doctor played it by the book, but she wanted to help me. They seemed to get the forceps ready really slow. (laughs) I think she was like trying to give me more time and a few more pushes and he he came out before we needed to, to look at any of those options. And it felt like longer to me, but on the discharge notes, it said 24 minutes of pushing, even on, even on my back on the bed, which is not at all what I had, had wanted to do. So it was at the end of the day, like remarkably kind of quick and easy and the breaking of the waters worked out this time. Cervical lip moved as soon as the waters broke. Wow. Cause that's what they said push now right yeah yeah as soon like it was instant she broke the waters and everyone was yelling push it was like there was no gap between that at all and yeah 20 minutes basically 20 minutes later he was born how did wow. you feel oh he was on your I, chest? I looked up at luke and i said i did it i did it i did it <laughs> and, and and he he confessed to me afterwards that the he the amount of stress he felt in that room was just indescribable. He said, I couldn't even think about the baby. It was like almost like a religious thing of I'm praying to God that this baby is born naturally because he was genuinely really worried about who I would be if we had had to have another second cesarean. He was like, you would be a different person today if you'd had that. And that's true. I, I think the trauma of that would have been extreme. I would genuinely have been worried about who I would have become after that. So he said he was just like overjoyed, <laughs> not because we'd had a baby, like obviously that too, but it was more that that we had achieved what we had set out to achieve, that all that like worry and difficulty and saying no and pushing back and fighting the system that, that we had succeeded in spite of all those things, yeah. I just felt on cloud nine, it is the best, best feeling. It's just indescribable that I had done it and that I had basically got everything that I had wanted. I had had an unmedicated, spontaneous labor that didn't end in a cesarean. You know, it was, it was just extraordinary. It was such a good feeling. Yeah, that's amazing. 
And um, with your placenta, did they have to give you the Syntocin injection to get it out or were you able to have a physiological? So I, I requested a physiological birth. This is one of the other things I'm not super happy with. I, I, I said I didn't want the placenta injection, but almost immediately the doctor like pressed quite hard on my abdomen and like seemed to make it come out quicker. Um, so it was out very 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 quickly even though I didn't have the injection and she didn't ask me um, could she do that she just did it so I'm not super thrilled about that again would be like a thing if you could go back you'd go like no let it have its own time but I just said no injection and the next thing I knew she was pushing on my stomach and there it was how did your postpartum compare this time Oh, so, so much better. Uh, after within half an hour, I was showered and dressed and up walking about. I was like on, I was just on cloud nine. I was on like such an adrenaline high. The only things about the the birth that weren't amazing was that because he was so early, they just mm-hmm. took him off to the NICU straight away. They didn't even really tell me that's what they were doing. They They just... They just took him and now I can see that because he was so early that was always going to happen but I didn't know that. And the weird thing is that I never at once at any point in the labour thought there is something wrong with the baby. Like I just Mm. had this gut, like all of my concern was for myself. I know that sounds like totally terrible. (laughs) (laughs) I never thought the baby's coming early because there's something wrong. It was Mm. I just had complete confidence that, that he was okay so it was a really big shock to me because when he was born he got like almost perfect agpars nine and ten he yeah. on his own and so I couldn't really understand why they'd taken him off I just thought we would go off to maternity together like normal babies but because he was so early they that's just the procedure I didn't know that at the time it actually would have been a little bit like it wasn't until we were over in the NICU that I was like, oh, he's not leaving here. <laughs> that was quite a shock. So I, di- I only got like five minutes skin to skin and then they took him away. I also had experiences in the NICU that weren't really very good at all and that I've been encouraged to report that to them, mainly to do with establishing breastfeeding. Because I had a baby who came early but who was perfectly healthy and fine but they wanted to execute the 34-week plan, which meant that he wouldn't be able, they said he wouldn't be able to suck well, he would get too tired eating, all this stuff. And so I really struggled to get them to let me establish breastfeeding. So that kind of, that that week in the NICU really sort of eclipsed <laughs> what had mm. happened in the birth for a long time, if that makes sense. Mm. Like I just fought the system for the yes. birth and then I was fighting the NICU just to get, them to not do stuff to my baby they wanted to discharge me before they discharged him and I just dug my heels in and said no I'm not going I'm not going and bought Mm -hmm. myself three extra nights and then we went home together no one can figure out why he came early they sent away my placenta for tests neither of us Mm -hmm. had an infection it's a mystery that we'll never solve he was 2.9 kilos at basically 35 weeks. So thank God I didn't have those growth scans because uh, yes. <laughs> baby. So that was, I'm really pleased that I didn't do that because that's all that that would have done. He's um, bigger than my babies were at full term. <laughs> I, know, 
I know. His Emil was three point seven, so I was mm. expecting four kilos. But mm. yeah, so he was born at two point nine, which was a big help because you know, like that's a really good weight. So they weren't super concerned about that. And it's just a mystery. It was like, and he's had really no kind of issues at all. It was like he grew everything he needed to and then was like, I'm out of here. I'm not going to put on mm. any of that. Um, he was just really skinny. That was the only yeah. thing. He was just really skinny. So the the postpartum recovery has been like um, amazing. And the fact that I could just get up immediately and walk around was a huge bonus and having two under two if I hadn't been able to lift my older child for six weeks I I I just I would have had to have someone move in with us and and help I just don't see how I could have done it and that was a major major factor in me wanting to have a VBAC is just to not be out of action for that long and I just remember with Emil crying every time I had to get up to feed him because of the pain of getting in and out of bed. And I just didn't want that again. <laughs> I had a small tear and a couple yeah. of stitches, but nothing nothing too bad. And so I, I just felt like I could pretty much get on with my life, which was not how I felt after the cesarean. So that's been amazing, a real blessing and a real gift. A lot of people have encouraged me to give feedback to the hospital and I definitely want to make it better for other women but I do have a kind of fear about not being listened to if, if that makes sense or not really being not really being heard. Like I feel really good at the moment and I'm concerned that the giving of the feedback might actually undo some of that. So I'm still just I'm still deciding but I wonder if there are better ways to do that than dealing with the hospital. Really, it should really be the system, you know, taking ownership and listening to the women, getting out there and actually actively trying to find out, particularly after the first birth, you know, have better systems in place. Can we find out how you're going five months down the track? I really think that that is, I received no support about the birth the first birth after I'd had it, like none. You get child and family health for the baby, but mm. you're not referred to anywhere that you could talk about having a traumatic birth. Mm. And I didn't even know that's what it was. I, I really think that that, that should happen. <laughs> like it is so, it, it is it's just one of the, like the worst, worst periods that I can have imagined for me. And the idea that you would that I was just left to kind of wade through that on my own seems really wrong, especially now that I know how many people that is happening to. If one in three women are having birth trauma, it feels like when someone comes to see you that they should say, how did you feel about your birth? And then they can listen to you and see if they think that you need to be referred on somewhere else. That just seems like it would be an excellent, excellent service because it's, it is happening. Well, Hazel's research had shown that actually out of the women who've had cesareans, two-thirds found that traumatic experience. So it's more than one in three when you consider women who have experienced a cesarean. Which is, that makes yeah. sense. Like, it does, yeah. What other surgery do you have that it's just, oh, well, good for you. Like that, you shouldn't feel any different about that. Like that was reading how to heal a bad birth really helped me with that because it was like oh I'm not a freak because I went and had 
abdominal sur- major abdominal surgery that I did not plan to have at- unexpectedly. Mm. The fact that I feel not amazing about that, that's not weird. <laughs> and it would no. actually be weird if you were just like, oh, that's fine. Um, you have a car accident. Everybody understands that that, and then you have to go and have surgery. Everybody understands that that is like a problem. But yeah, mm. I, I really think the education around cesareans is is non-existent. And yeah, like I said, I researched everything under the sun except for that because I was so sure that I wasn't going to have one. But when you do and you know nothing about it, that is problematic, I think. And I'm sure this is no like news to anybody who listens to this podcast, but the healthy baby thing is just not, it just doesn't help. Because it's not about that. Of course you're happy you have a healthy baby. But for me it was about, I, from the day after he was born, everything was great. It was just this one terrible, terrible day that I couldn't get out of my head. And it felt like surely I do matter too, you know. Like mm-hmm. how am I meant to be a good mum if I can't, the thing that I thought was going to give bring me the most joy that I had ever felt the birth of my first child is the worst day of my life. That should matter. That should be important. That that people should care <laughs> that I feel like that. But it really felt like nobody really understood. Well, good on you, Mara, for using your agency and learning from your past experience and really taking it on board and, and confronting uh, the trauma so bravely from your first birth and using that to to benefit your VBAC hopes. Thank you so much for joining us today and and sharing your two very personal stories. I know a lot of women out there will take away so much from this. It'll be a really great resource for them to learn on their own journeys. No problem. I mean, I really can't thank you enough for making a resource like this. It is so invaluable to women who are trying to do this. It's a wonderful community service. Lovely. Thanks, (laughs) Mara. Thank you for listening to this VBAC story. If you like the show, please subscribe and feel free to leave a review. If you would like to connect with us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for VBAC Birth Stories. If you have a question or you'd like to express interest in sharing your personal story, email us at vbackbirthstories at gmail.com VBAC Birth Stories is a podcast where we share women's lived experiences. Please be advised that it's not intended to replace medical advice. If you have any concerns at all during your pregnancy, please always speak to your healthcare provider.